The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Welcome back to episode 50 of Things Are About To Get Weird. Can you believe we are halfway to 100 episodes? This feels like such a landmark. I truly could not be more grateful to be at this point and for all of your incredible support along the way. And to mark this milestone, I've known for a while that I wanted to cover probably the most requested case I've had for the show. I've lost track of how many of you have asked me to dive into this one over the past year. So today is the day I'm going to be looking into the Dyatlov Pass incident. Without any exaggeration, it's safe to say that this is one of the most mysterious unsolved events in modern history. It's completely baffling and as a result, there are countless theories relating to it, many of which I will cover in this episode. A huge warning before we start that this is going to get rough at times, pretty much right from the beginning. As always, I won't dwell on any gory details any longer than necessary, but there will be moments when I have to mention things like certain physical injuries as they directly relate to what makes this case so mysterious. Also, I'm going to do my very best with all of the pronunciations of names in this story, but please do bear with me. So if you're ready, if you're prepared, let's get started. On the 26th of February 1959, in the snow-covered northern Ural mountain range located in what was then the Soviet Union, a shocking and entirely perplexing discovery was made. A search party who had set out in the treacherous winter conditions to find a group of nine missing hikers, mostly students from Ural Polytechnic Institute, had stumbled across a partly collapsed tent covered in a thick layer of snow. They began to dig in an attempt to gain access to it, and once enough snow had been swept off it, they noticed something very odd indeed about the canopy. It appeared to them to have been slashed open, cut deliberately with a sharp blade, as though those who had been inside the tent had been desperate to escape it. Speaking of the inside, when the search party were able to look into the abandoned shelter, they were surprised to find a much more orderly, organised scene. Items belonging to the tent's occupants were still laid out inside, mostly undisturbed. There were ski boots, axes, rucksacks, blankets and maps, amongst other things, along with a full plate of food sitting out as though it was ready to be consumed. Determined to find more clues as to the whereabouts of those the tent had belonged to, the searchers, including a man named Mikhail Sharavin, started to look around the immediate area to see if any tracks were still visible in the snow. Sure enough, they came across yet another alarming sight. Footprints, which looked like they belonged to eight, possibly nine people, stretched out for between five and ten metres from the tent outwards, and then they simply stopped. The more closely the footprints were examined, the more obvious it became that those who had created them had not been wearing appropriate footwear for the minus 20 degrees Celsius or so weather. It appeared that they had either been wearing just socks, a single boot, or nothing at all on their bare feet. As the hunt continued for the group, 
Footprints were again detected further downhill, heading towards a forested area, and it was noted that the prints had been made by people who were walking, not running. Although these footprints once again tailed off, the search team were about to find that their worst suspicions had been confirmed. Tragically, the next morning, the rescue party discovered the bodies of two of the hikers at the edge of the forest near a large cedar tree and the remains of a small campfire. 21-year-old Yuri Doroshenko and 23-year-old Yuri Krivonishenko, who had a reputation for being an excellent mandolin player who loved to tell jokes, were both found wearing just their underwear. Again, given the temperatures, this was incredibly strange, but nothing compared to some of the injuries spotted on their bodies. Although it was clear that both young men had sadly frozen to death, it was later noted that Yuri Doroshenko had a patch of burned hair on one side of his head, as well as numerous smaller abrasions to his body. Yuri Krivonishenko had similar cuts and scrapes, as well as third-degree burns on his shin and foot. I'm sorry about this next detail, do skip ahead a couple of seconds if you prefer. I do always want to warn you, but it seemed that he had actually bitten off one of his own knuckles from his right hand. I know, it's really horrible to think about. It's also appeared that one of the men had tried to climb up the cedar tree at one point as there were broken branches and other signs of recent human activity around it. In a devastating update, just a few hours later, two more of the missing hikers were found, and again, they had both passed away. They were uncovered further back up the hill as though they had been trying to get back to their tent, and the bodies belonged to 22-year-old Zineda Kolmogorova, and the leader of the group experienced hiker and skier Igor Dyatlov, who was 23. Zineda had a long red bruise on one side of her torso, which indicated that she had been struck by something with enough force to leave the mark, and Igor Dyatlov was found without his shoes, face down in the snow, clinging onto a tree branch, again with cuts and bruises. Once more, it was determined that they had died from hypothermia, but that didn't explain their other injuries. Following the discoveries of the first four adventurers, some time actually passed before the next body was found, which must have been unthinkably agonising for the families of those still missing. On the 5th of March, 23-year-old Rustem Slobodin was located, and again it was ruled that he had died from hypothermia. But, whilst he was still wearing most of his clothing and at least one boot, which you'd think would have provided him a little extra protection from the elements, he also had a fractured skull, but the reason for this couldn't be explained. And when the remaining four hikers' bodies were eventually recovered from a makeshift shelter inside a ravine a couple of months later in May... Further incredibly weird and often disturbing details about their injuries started to emerge. I know there are a lot of names in this story, but I wanted to make sure that I spoke about everyone individually because so often they're all kind of lumped in together as Igor Dyatlov and the rest, and I really didn't want to do that. So, these details are awful, so I'll try to be brief but 23-year-old Nikolai Thibault-Brignol was also found with a severely fractured skull, which was actually ruled to be the cause of his death. 
Alexander Kolevatov, who had been 24 and a nuclear physics student, had what was described as an oddly twisted neck, missing eyebrows and a wound behind his ear. Then there was 20-year-old Lyudmila Dubanina and Semyon Zolotaryov, who was in his late 30s. Both were missing their eyes, and Lyudmila had no tongue. They both had other serious injuries, but I think things have become gruesome enough, so I won't go into detail. But they were both found to have died from severe chest trauma. Just to note at this point, if you've heard this story before, you may know that there had been a tenth member of the group, a young man named Yuri Yudin, but he had actually left the expedition early after suffering from some health issues, and as a result, he wasn't caught up in the horrors that befell his friends. So if you hear that the group was originally ten people strong, that's why. Okay, now we know the bizarre details about how the hikers were found after they'd passed. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about why they were there in the first place. Igor Dyatlov, the trip leader, had been obsessed with camping and outdoor adventuring since he was a child. He carried this love of exploring into his early adult life, and while studying at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, he found that there were others who shared his passion. I'm going to try and keep the political elements of this story concise as it's very layered and complex. But essentially, Dyatlov was inspired to plan a particularly challenging skiing and hiking expedition, which would take place in the wintry conditions of early 1959, as he wanted to try and demonstrate how bold and tenacious this new generation growing up in the former Soviet Union was. That was his idea. The plan was endorsed by the Polytechnic Institute Sports Club, and the 16-day expedition, which would take the group across the Ural mountain range, which divided Russia and Asia, continued to be prepared for. Most of those who signed up to take part were recruited by Dyatlov. They were friends of his or friends of friends, but the oldest member of the group, Semyon Zolotaryov, who was either 37 or 38, had been added to the party pretty last minute by someone in the Institute's administration team. He was a World War II veteran and obviously not an existing part of this group of acquaintances. Nevertheless, when it came time for the group to set out on their cross-country skiing and hiking mission on the 23rd of January, their spirits seemed high and there was a definite air of excitement amongst the members. Now, one really fascinating aspect of this story is that we actually know a relatively decent amount about the team's movements, emotions and challenges during those first few days of their journey thanks to two different factors. One, they actually kept a communal journal as well as personal diaries. And two, they also had a number of cameras. I think one of the reasons this case has stuck with so many people over the years, aside from all the strange details and theories, is because we have these very candid, real and often playful and funny photos of the group, which only makes it feel even more tragic. I'll be sure to put a few of them up over on our Instagram page for you to see. So, 
The expedition had been expected to conclude around the 12th of February, and Dyatlov had promised to send a telegram from their finishing point once they'd successfully traversed through the mountains. The families of those on the trek and the Polytechnic Institute were eagerly awaiting word from the group, but no telegram arrived on the 12th. There wasn't too much initial panic as it wasn't totally unusual for a trip like this to overrun slightly, but by the 20th of February the delay felt wrong enough that a search party was launched. Several search parties actually. There were fellow students from the institute, police, military and prison guards, as well as some of the indigenous Mansi people, whose native land lies within the same region. Then, sadly, as we know, it took them around six days to find the students' tent and the first of the bodies. Now, that's a summary of what took place based on the factual information we know. There are more details available if you want to read deeper into everything, and as always, I'll be mentioning various sources at the end of this episode. But for now, I wanted to move on to the theories as to what happened in that elusive, mysterious pocket of time between the group members being compelled to leave their tent and their untimely deaths. Here we go. From the outset, many people were simply not buying what was suggested after the autopsies of the first four students, that they had simply died from hypothermia and that was all there was to it. The other injuries they had, which had nothing to do with them having been extremely cold, were too strange to ignore, and as more and more bodies were discovered with even more extreme injuries, the voices insisting that something more sinister was at play only grew louder. A homicide investigation was actually opened, headed up by a prosecutor named Lev Ivanov and this is when it was confirmed that the student's tent had indeed been cut open from the inside, and most of the initial murmurings of suspicion and finger-pointing was directed towards the Mansi people. It was suggested that some members of this indigenous population may have felt the group were trespassing on or near to their land, but from the start, this really didn't make sense. Firstly, there were no signs of a struggle or fighting which you would expect if their tent had been ambushed. Secondly, there were no other footprints detected from anyone outside of the nine hikers. Thirdly, the Mansi were incredibly helpful in the search effort, and even helped to find the final four students in May of 1959. One of the current Mansi leaders, Valery Anyamov, spoke to the BBC about the event in 2019, telling them, quote, Soviet investigators were convinced we Mansi must have killed them. So many people around here were arrested, and a woman from another village who is no longer with us used to say that the secret police tortured them. I don't know if that is true, but they were certainly interrogated for weeks. I mean, to me, it feels that these accusations may have been based far more in prejudice and their proximity to the scene than anything else. This line of inquiry was dropped. In fact, the entire homicide investigation was closed in late May, but some people continue to speculate about the Mansi's possible involvement to this day, throwing out all kinds of theories that perhaps some of their leaders were on magic mushrooms and killed the students as part of a ritual. But again, the evidence just isn't there. Another person whose intentions were put under the microscope after the incident was the oldest member of the group, 
Semyon Zolotayev. Although the World War II veteran had also been a sports instructor, which gave him a connection to the Polytechnic Institute Sports Club, people found it odd that he'd been such a latecomer to the group just before they set out on their trip, and that he was quite a bit older than the rest. A whole raft of allegations were made about him after his death, that he could have been a CIA informant or a KGB agent, or someone other than he claimed to be entirely. Some have suggested he killed the others, or that they were all killed by one government force or another when they were really only after Zolotayev. But again, this didn't really add up. His own injuries were horrific, and there's no way he could have murdered all eight of his fellow hikers whilst they were trekking through thick snow, and then what, maimed himself? It's practically impossible, really. When it comes to the additional special forces theories, these have ranged from the notion that the group stumbled across a secret testing facility and were killed because they'd seen too much, to ideas based on one of the very weird findings that came out of the investigation. It was found that some of the group members' bodies had traces of radioactivity on them. As you can imagine, some latched onto this detail and started imagining that some of the hikers could have been involved in an elaborate mission, including espionage and the transfer of radioactive materials, which all went badly wrong. But arguably, the more rational explanation for this radioactivity showing up on tests was due to the presence of thorium in their camping lanterns. Weirdly though, there were reports of birds and other wildlife being found dead in the area with little explanation around the time the students died. Lots of the specifics around the radiation theory feel very secretive and vague, which only adds to the intrigue but also leaves us with few answers. One fascinating but terrible overarching finding that really does rule out the suggestion that the explorers were involved in any fights or altercations is that their injuries were concluded to have not been inflicted by fellow humans. In fact, some reports claim that doctors who examined a number of the bodies said the wounds were the kinds you'd expect from the victims of car crashes. They were too powerful to have been caused by another person. This also helps to dispel the idea that they were perhaps mistaken for escaped prisoners from one of the gulag prison camps that still existed in the area, and killed for absconding. Firstly, there's no evidence of any escapes happening around that time, and secondly, there are no signs any executions did or could have taken place. If you're ready for things to get even weirder, Let's move on to some of the more out-there theories. There are so many of them, but here are the ones I've seen discussed most often. Then after that, we'll loop back to the explanation many people have believed to be accurate in more recent years. So, one of the most widely debated suggestions over the decades has been whether the group could have accidentally ventured into the site of some kind of test or experiment. And unlike before, when people were theorising that they'd been killed because they'd witnessed something they shouldn't have, this idea revolves around them having been collateral damage in the test itself. 
And this notion hasn't come out of nowhere. The elderly mother of Valerie, the Mansi leader I mentioned earlier, remembers something incredibly strange happening around the time the group went missing. She told the BBC that in February of 1959, she was collecting firewood outdoors when she spotted something odd in the sky. She described it as a bright, burning object and said it was, quote, wider at the front and narrower at the back, with a tail and there were sparks flying off it. The belief that has since sprung from this is that perhaps this object was a parachute mine that was being tested. Maybe one group member was outside the tent on the night they died, which is believed to have been the night of the 1st going into the 2nd of February. They spotted something bright and unusual in the sky and shouted to the others to warn them, and they all rushed to get out of the tent, perhaps afraid it was some kind of missile. Or maybe they were all woken at the same time by a loud noise associated with the light. Regardless, when they clambered to get away from wherever they thought it was going to land, it exploded mid-air, which could have feasibly caused some of both the external and internal injuries they sustained. Very interesting. Alternatively, many have also interpreted that this object in the sky could have been a UFO, and the reason that the group members were found in such unusual states and positions is because they were attacked by forces beyond our understanding, in ways we couldn't possibly comprehend. I do get why this idea is popular, because all of the circumstances are so hard to explain, so it has that extra appeal as a catch-all concept. Some who attended the funerals of the hikers and witnessed seeing their open caskets recall that their skin had taken on a reddish-brown brick shade, whilst those who believe in the parachute mind-testing theory thinks this bolsters their idea, others think this was more likely a result of mummification of the bodies starting to happen after their exposure to the elements. I looked it up and this actually can happen, so it's an interesting point to consider. Then we had the Yeti theory. This is mostly based on one of the journal entries the group made on their trek where they wrote almost like a newspaper parody that was clearly intended to be a joke. They referenced that a yeti lived in the mountain range. Add to this the fact that in one of the photos recovered from their cameras, there does look to be a tall figure emerging from the trees in the background. But in my opinion, this could very easily just have been one of the hikers themselves. It is quite weird on first glance, yes, but remember that we're talking about 1959, the photographs weren't always crystal clear. We also have the infrasound theory, which I personally find quite captivating. In 2013, the writer Donny Aisher wrote a book in which he explored the idea that high winds passing over the mountain range created infrasounds, which are vibrations below the range of what we can hear as humans. He suggests that these frequencies drove the hikers to completely freak out, flee their tent in a frenzy and eventually die from hypothermia. But again, that doesn't explain their other injuries. Another theory centres around the possibility that they experienced carbon monoxide poisoning from a heater in their tent, but that one was quickly dispelled as it didn't fully add up. There were too many elements that that couldn't possibly explain. But throughout all of the 
dozens and dozens and dozens of proposed ideas that have been put forward over the years, one has stuck slightly more than the others, and that is the avalanche theory. Or to be more accurate, the general natural incident theory, because things like hurricanes or some other kind of wind event that could cause the snow to drastically shift have also been floated as relatively likely answers in this mystery. However, there are still gaps in even the most logical of these interpretations. Back in 2019, the Russian government reopened the case to try and determine just what took place in the Dyatlov Pass incident, which obviously gained its name as a reference to the group's leader. The three lines of investigation that they were pursuing as causes were an avalanche, a hurricane, or a falling slab of snow that was tightly compacted. And in July 2020, the findings from this new analysis suggested that the students were caught out by a mixture of an avalanche combined with poor visibility. It was put forward that perhaps they were sleeping when large chunks of snow began to hit their tent. They escaped as quickly as they could and hurried to seek shelter at the nearby ridge. But because it was so difficult to see, they became disorientated and were unable to make it back to their shelter before they finally succumbed to the cold weather or injuries they'd sustained while scrambling in the blizzard. This avalanche could have been the result of the group disturbing the more fragile snow around them when they pitched up their tent. The more gruesome details like Lyudmila Dubanina and Semyon Zolotaryov missing their eyes could have been down to animal activity in the area. But there were many criticisms of this 2020 finding, including the fact that their tent was left largely intact with all of their belongings still neatly inside, which seems very strange if it was really hit by an avalanche. There were also no signs of avalanche activity spotted by the rescuers, although some experts argue that evidence of avalanches isn't often visible for long. The environment can sort of reset quite quickly. Also, none of the hikers died from asphyxiation, which is what you might more commonly expect to happen in the event of an avalanche. It just didn't fully explain some of their more severe injuries. Not to mention the fact that this government study probably wasn't completely impartial. But then, in 2021, Further research into this theory was published in the journal Communications Earth and Environment, using all kinds of avalanche simulations and even data that inspired the way the movement of snow was animated in the Disney movie Frozen, which I thought was fascinating, plus information about impact injuries in humans that had originally come out of car crash safety testing research done by the automotive industry. Essentially, what what was found is that a small but powerful avalanche could have reasonably hit the tent, with enough force to cause many of the extreme injuries some of the hikers were discovered with. These injuries wouldn't have necessarily been immediately fatal though, hence why they were still able to run or be helped towards the areas they were eventually found in. After this, many other experts weighed in, saying that a phenomenon called paradoxical undressing could explain why some of the hikers were found with so few clothes on, due to the fact that some people 
people who are just about to perish from hypothermia suddenly feel very hot, and their instinct is to cool down by removing their clothing. They also suggested that those found with burn marks on their skin sustain them from a desperate attempt to keep warm by the fire they were able to create. In the case of Yuri Kravonishenko's terrible knuckle injury, the idea that he bit himself as he became delirious due to the hypothermia has been noted. But despite this explanation seeming to cover most bases, it has done nothing to quell the suspicions of many people fascinated by the Dyatlov Pass tragedy. There have been extensive counter-arguments presented for most of these points, including that the hikers were too experienced to have pitched their tent in a dangerous spot, and wouldn't have even remotely risked triggering an avalanche via their choice of location or pitching techniques. I would add to this that if the group were in such a desperate rush, why did their footprints show that they were walking, not running or frantically scrambling through the snow? So I guess this leads on to the question of, where do I land on this divisive and really quite frustrating unsolved case? Well, as you can imagine, I have thought about this a lot. The logical part of my brain wants to believe the avalanche theory because there's science behind it and it's probably the closest we'll ever get to a final conclusion as to what happened. But every time I decide that, yep, I'm convinced this must be what happened, or at least that it's the closest thing to the truth we'll ever have, I'll then go and read another article about the story and every time I do, I get the weirdest feeling. I just have a sense that we're missing this huge huge puzzle piece here. And I'm not even sure that any of the 70 plus theories that have been put forward over the years have landed on it. Maybe they have, but perhaps there will forever be this gap in knowledge that was only ever known to the nine souls who never returned from their adventure. And with that, I wanted to finish off by remembering that, as gripping as this story is, those who died were real people with families who never got that call from their loved one to say that they were en route home. If any definitive conclusions are ever reached in this unsolved case, we can only hope that they come sooner rather than later, to finally give the living relatives of the Dyatlov Pass 9 some real answers. Oh, that was a heavy one. A huge thank you to everyone who requested I cover this story. It's without a doubt one of the most intriguing incidents I've ever researched. And on that note, I did want to say that there is so much more information out there to read. You could create an entire podcast series about this one topic. So if you're interested, I definitely recommend some further reading. And of course, I would love to hear your thoughts and theories. So don't hesitate to get in touch and let me know where you land on this one. I think we need a bit of a mood lightener. So without further ado, I'm going to pivot into our regular outro feature. It's time for Weird Media. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
So, as you know, I am fascinated by scams. I was going to say that next to strange but true stories, they are the most fascinating thing in the world to me, but honestly, they often fall under the strange but true category themselves. If I hear about a scam that's been uncovered, I need to know every detail. So when I saw a 2021 film pop up on Netflix, which is loosely inspired by a real scam that happened over in the US state of Arizona in 2012, I knew I had to watch it. I saw that it starred Kristen Bell, who I love, so it was a no-brainer. I had to put it on. And the film is called Queen Pins. Here's the thing though, by all accounts, when it first came out, it was considered a bit of a flop but it seems like it's having somewhat of a revival thanks to Netflix, and I can see why. I'm not bothered about what some of the reviews said, I thought it was great. It's not a hard-hitting, damning look at the crime that was committed, which all centres around coupons and essentially cheating large supermarkets out of free products. It's much more of a comedy drama. Those two things don't really feel like they should go together, scams and comedy, but in this specific instance, something about it just works. Is it an Oscar-worthy film? No. Is it a fascinating watch? Absolutely, I think so. The events in the film are pretty different to what happened in real life, and I won't spoil anything of course, but the basic premise of it being a coupon-based theft slash fraudulent scheme operated by regular women with no prior criminal pass is true, even if the ways in which it was run were changed for the movie. All of the performances are great, in particular the comedy partnership between the characters of the loss prevention officer from one of the supermarkets and the postal service investigator played by Vince Vaughn, very entertaining. I have a feeling that this one might divide opinions, it seems to have done so far. So if you do give it a watch, I would love to hear what you made of Queen Pins. Okay, a few quick shout outs to the sources I used in my research today. First up, that big BBC piece I mentioned a few times, which was incredible. That was by Lucy Ash from December 2019. We had a brilliant National Geographic article by Robin George Andrews from January 2021 and a really detailed New Yorker piece from May 2021, that was by Douglas Preston. There was an article on the Smithsonian Magazine website, that was by Maylan Solly from January 2021, and the Sky History website has an article which provides a really good overview of the case. Finally, the diatlovpass.com website is absolutely packed full of information. There's photographs, extra resources, so much on there that you could easily lose a whole day scrolling around. To get in touch and let me know which theory you find most compelling, you can find us on Instagram at thingsgetweirdpodcast or on Facebook by searching for Things Are About To Get Weird. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com and you can also send me your own strange but true stories over there too, especially if you would like it to be featured in one of our Weird Fix episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please do consider leaving a rating or review wherever you listen. It really, really helps to support the show. A massive thank you for listening today and here's to the next 50 episodes and beyond. I'll be back to chat to you again next Wednesday. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, for the good kind of weird. 